Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us today from the UK is Annie Kelly, a researcher into digital cultures, anti-feminism and the far right. Thanks very much for joining us, Annie. Oh, thanks for having me on. To be honest, the second I heard what the show was called, I was excited to be on it. (laughs) It's finally paying dividends. (laughs) I guess just to begin with, one of the things that you do is you're the UK correspondent for the podcast QAnon Anonymous. And something that we've done on this show a little bit is talked about Aussie Q, the Australian sort of variant Mm. of QAnon. What's British QAnon like? (laughs) <laughs> so British QAnon, I think, uh, is different from the American or the traditional original QAnon in quite a few ways. It's really taken on, I think, over the lockdown period, a little bit of its own national character. So for one thing, at least in the rallies I've been to in the Facebook groups I monitor, it's a lot less, I suppose, religious or uh, specifically evangelical religious than the American one. I think it has much more of that new age influence but it's also taken on aspects of british political culture british news and kind of i suppose these sort of recurring themes in kind of british media as well so for instance there were lots of references to famous british sex scandals or child exploitation scandals and that sort of thing at the rallies that i went to have you guys heard of like jimmy savile and things like Mm. that yeah. yeah, yeah. So there were like, you know, signs that referenced things like Jimmy Savile. There were lots of references to Prince Andrew. There was also like in the Facebook groups, at least that I monitor, there are kind of references to some really old kind of British conspiracy theories. So for instance, we have a show here called Crime Watch, which is... I suppose, yeah, kind of like a reality show, which is just sort of scaring various pensioners, I suppose, about various crimes that have happened in the UK. And in the 90s, it had a presenter called Jill Dando, who was actually shot in a mugging in the 90s. And she has sort of become a a figure of this conspiracy theory as well, where on the Facebook groups, they'll talk about things like how she was killed because she had to be silenced for speaking out against this kind of like uh, elite web of child trafficking that's going on. So it's like, it's very, it's taken on a very distinctive British character. It's taken on these, yeah, these little kind of nuggets, these little facets of British culture, I'd say, and sort of become very much its own thing very quickly. It's less interested in 
things like Donald Trump for obvious reasons, but it sort of has taken the bits of the conspiracy theory which are accessible and transferred them onto our culture, I'd say. Have the politics translated over just generally? Because you have this situation in the States where it's, you know, the Republicans or, you know, Trump is the hero. Is there, are the Tories, is Bojo filling any sort of role there? Uh, no, not at all. I'd say it feels a lot less partisan and a mo- lot more broadly populist here in the UK. That's not to say I, I don't think it's kind of still at its heart a very kind of right wing conspiracy theory, but it's more to say that it hasn't, yeah, it hasn't kind of taken on Boris Johnson as a national figure. The people here who believe in QAnon are much more likely to be speaking from a kind of general anti-elite message. I don't think it's you know, it would be pretty difficult, I think, in this country to fashion yourself as anti-elite and yet kind of somehow... Still be a Tory. Still be a Tory. I mean, I want to be clear, people do do it all the time. Like, it's a lot of what the kind of Brexit vote was about, right? But I think particularly with this sort of understanding of wealth, this, this nexus of wealth and power and child abuse and this sort of thing, it would be pretty difficult to kind of fashion the Tories as, you know, the kind of sole, the sole party that's speaking out against that. I assume the Labour Party are bad guys as far as British QAnon is concerned? Well, (laughs) they're not fond particularly of the Labour Party for a couple of reasons. The Labour Party are in the far right imagination here often cast as being responsible for child grooming cover-ups with things like Rotherham. This is kind of generally sort of spun in the far right imagination as a kind of an anti-racist endeavour. Sorry, I'm talking about Rotherham as if it's something that you guys know about. Do you know about Rotherham? This is like yeah, grooming gangs and things. The yeah. grooming gangs, yeah, yeah. Which oh. are alleged to be uh, principally Muslim in yes. um, composition, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the perpetrators were all from Muslim backgrounds, I think. And yeah, this was the far right, you know, to seize this kind of opportunity. You know, I want to be clear that there was a real cover up, but from my opinion, it wasn't, you know, so much as a kind of anti-racist endeavour, so much as a kind of anti-working class endeavour. Uh, the girls weren't believed because they were poor, because they weren't, weren't from the right family background, because they were in children's homes. They really were kind of, yeah, they really were kind of let down by local authorities. But, you know, this has been cast in the far right narrative as a, you know, the kind of PC culture gone mad. You can't even criticise, you know, uh, Muslim rapists because, you know, the sort of busybody labour authorities won't let you. So to that extent, yes, the Labour Party are definitely villainised. And I noticed when I was at the rally that this sort of a spontaneous chant of defund the BBC came up. Now, I'm not really a fan of the BBC in this country because I think they quite often do client journalism for our government. But I don't think that that was the same reason that they were chanting defund the BBC. The BBC, again, is often kind of cast as sort of like overly PC to, to the far right as sort of being having a kind of left wing or a liberal bias. And I suspect that was where that was coming from. But this kind of animus to the left, this kind of right anti-populism, I think may kind of indirectly serve the the right wing party in, in this country. But I wouldn't necessarily say that Q non-supporters or QAnon non-adherents are Tory supporters themselves. I think it's a bit more complicated. Also, in terms of demographics, I guess originally in the United States, QAnon was sort of considered to be this older person's conspiracy. Mm. Has that, uh, how is that playing out in the UK? 
Yeah, I was I was really interested by this um, because actually one thing that really shocked me when I came to the when I went to the rally in London was how many young women there were there. And I'm sort of saying young as in, I suppose, you know, 25 to 40 age demographic. And this is something that I've noticed on the Facebook groups as well. It tends to be older older people, as we might expect. But also there tends to be quite a lot of parents with young children. This is something that's really, really overwhelming, particularly in some of the more Save the Children oriented Facebook group. They're really dominated by mothers with young children there. What about uh, figures like Tommy Robinson and uh, other sorts of prominent personalities on the extreme or far right? Are they expressing an opinion and are their followers engaging with this movement? So, Tommy Robinson is something of an opportunist when it comes to conspiracy theories, particularly those on social media. So, for instance, I think, you know, one really unforgivable, unforgivable thing he did was, you know, lend credence to this really tragic case where three boys, they were teenage boys walking home from a party, were hit by a car and was driven by a drunk driver and all three of them were killed. And the parents in their grief became convinced that this was a terrorist attack that had been covered up. Now, the driver, I want to stress, I don't even think was Muslim. I think he was possibly of Hindu origin or something like that. But it was kind of enough, you know, to sort of spin this idea that this, those boys had been killed. And again, it had been covered up for, you know, nebulous reasons, really. Again, a sort of kind of PC kind of culture hiding the truth. And and Tommy Robinson's kind of been notorious for this sort of stuff for, you know, if there's a kind of anti-Muslim angle to exploit it. And so I predict that it probably won't be long until he, I think, tries to kind of cast himself as some sort of figure in this movement. It's kind of too irresistible to him. It's got all of the numbers. It's drawing these massive crowds. But one thing I will say is that it's at the minute, it feels quite leaderless, I suppose. There are organisers for the rallies, but they do tend to just sort of be people with with no kind of political background, with no kind of uh, background of organising. In fact, the one thing that I've found that most of the organisers have in common is that they're part of some kind of uh, social media MLM. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, that tends to be the common factor I can find in the people who have organised Save the Children rallies here in the UK, they nearly always tend to have some kind of uh, work from home structured kind of uh, business where they sell vitamins or something like that. Um, so I think that's an interesting, again, yeah, I think that's a really interesting commonality that they have, but it's not being driven in the way that you that you might expect. And I certainly probably did expect actually by people with recognizable background in far-right politics. Every single person who's like a major figure in the anti-lockdown movement here has had some sort of involvement in an MLM. Is that right? That's so interesting. You think you see, you find one and they, they haven't, and then a little while later they'll post something. I was like, oh, you know, when I was, you know, hocking essential oils, it's like, ah, there's another one. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. And I think it does really speak to the incredible crossover that this has had with, this conspiracy theory has had with, I suppose, kind of more 
baseline conspiracy theory groups that we have in these countries, which are, you know, kind of anti-vac and kind of generally sort of, I suppose, more interested in this sort of individual purity, purity of the self, kind of, you know, no chemicals, that sort of thing. But also kind of how relatively ignored and understudied those kind of digital communities have been, you know, how with hindsight, how ripe they seemed for something like this, do you know, and how all it just took was the kind of right combination of uh, volume of posts and the right combination of words. And those groups became, I mean, radicalized probably isn't the right word, because in many ways, they already were radical, just about a different kind of set of beliefs. But how quickly they became galvanized, I suppose, by this kind of does speak, I think, to a bit of a blind spot that I think a lot of far right researchers have. And I'm including myself in this for Facebook and Instagram. And I think these kind of communities, which are seen as kind of kooky, but a little harmless, mainly, mainly because of how made up of women they are. And how I really think there hasn't been much of a sustained pressure until now on social media companies to to combat these groups in the same way that we, what we might for traditional kind of neo-Nazis. And this pressure has suddenly come out all at once, I think, because we've suddenly realised that with COVID and with, you know, in my country, 5G towers being, you know, vandalised, but even more alarmingly, this kind of concept that we could create a COVID vaccine, but it will mean absolutely nothing if people don't trust it and don't take it, right? And I think we've suddenly come to realise actually how pervasive these attitudes are and how dangerous they can be, as opposed to, yeah, I think a slightly kind of kooky, harmless belief, which is certainly, I think, how I was guilty of viewing these groups a little bit like that before. They didn't interest me as much as, I suppose, more kind of traditional far-right communities. And I'm I think I am now really reckoning with how I really should have been keeping an eye on them much earlier than I have been. All, all the uh, far-right researchers are on Stormfront when they should have been on Mum's Net. <laughs> I mean, yeah, unironically, yes. <laughs> You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're talking to Annie Kelly about QAnon, the far right and women. Facebook has announced at various stages that it's going to, or is in the process of cracking down on these sorts of ideas on its platforms. Has there been any discernible effect upon the British QAnon crowd? <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad that you asked that question because no, <laughs> quite simply no. So one thing that when I was researching, I suppose, you know, trying to, trying to find out what I thought the most convincing answer was for this new QAnon evolution. One thing that I made myself do was sit down and read through all of those tedious social media announcements that they make whenever they are going to do a kind of crackdown on a certain belief, a certain ideology, a certain slogan. And they're really boring and they're, they're actually designed to be a little bit boring because they actually don't want anyone reading them too closely, do you know? And they're sort of written in that very kind of press release style. But one thing I thought that was particularly cunning about the Facebook announcement was how it posed itself as going very far indeed and used some quite strong language when it came to condemning QAnon. Uh, but when you actually looked at the measures they were taking, they were, they were barely there at all. Do you know? And this was masked in this kind of, in this kind of language, which, you know, spoke about how dangerous QAnon can be. I mean, one thing I thought, even then, I thought was really funny was how they, 
they had to announce it at the same time as them cracking down on a antifa communities so like you know they had to do a both sides thing and i think they put it as like QAnon, antifa and all communities that encourage violence or something like that but one thing actually really that they basically said was that they were just there was a one-time deleting of certain accounts certain groups certain pages which promoted the QAnon conspiracy theory and they had a very impressive number but from all the groups that i've been monitoring only one of them actually got hit by that and then for the next thing they said they were going to allow discussion of the conspiracy theory which doesn't include immediate direct threats of violence or calls to violence which is actually just what the facebook terms of service is anyway you already can't you know make threats of violence so that actually made absolutely no impact whatsoever it was it was designed to look like it was kind of really dealing with the problem and really tackling the problem but it was really just a a way of just saying we're going to do what we've already been doing one thing i've noticed is that there are slightly more fact checks sort of bubbles that pop up on certain kind of uh conspiracy posts and misinformation posts but it you know it's absolutely meaningless in in many ways the people in these communities view that as a source of pride um when they get when they get that little uh, veil put over their post which you can simply just click through it, to them it means they're onto something the powerful people are trying to stop them i think what's even more alarming is how many posts i haven't even seen that on which to my mind are if not an immediate direct call to violence, because that's such narrow wording, certainly to me looked like they could inspire violence. Do you know, we're talking about accusing various people of, you know, the most horrific crimes against children that one can imagine. How can that not be a call to violence, knowing how people work, knowing how much people want to protect children? Yeah, it kind of boggles the mind, really. There was a recent case here in Australia of an MP who took legal action against someone who made statements on Facebook along the lines of them being uh, implicated in a conspiracy to either perpetuate or to conceal child abuse. And that MP won their case in court and the, the person they were bringing the action against was fined however many hundreds of thousands of dollars. But it seems to be, also seems to be the case that the person they were prosecuting actually resides in New Zealand or up there. So what impact this is going to have, I don't know, obviously. But do you think some kind of legal intervention is a good idea or or necessary in this context? I mean, I find this very difficult because I think at the end of the day, I can be quite, quite squishy on free speech, do you know? And I don't really like the idea of, uh, particularly when it comes to conspiracy theories, a law cracking down on the idea of uh, questioning authority, because it sort of feels a bit to me like it's a very broad tool and would probably end up being used against the left. So I, 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 I always hesitate that I don't really like the idea of kind of, you know, laws about what you can and can't say online. One thing, and I think this comes back to the MLM connection that we were talking about earlier, is that it certainly feels as if there is a for-profit network of conspiracy theories that I think probably can and should be tackled and it should have been tackled, you know, yesterday, really. This kind of notion that part of the reason that these communities are so vast, that these networks were able to just you know, transmit the QAnon conspiracy theory 
so quickly, so rapidly. And now it feels like it's everywhere. Do you know, I've had so many people say, you know, now their mums are posting stuff about it. One of the reasons that they have been able to do that was because that network has been so lucrative for so long. All of this anti-vaccination stuff, it is all trying to sell you something. And there's a reason that so many of the organisers of, you know, the latest Save the Children iteration are already established influencers. It's because they've been selling things like vitamins or essential oils or something like that for a long time and they've been making money from this. And so I think that is probably where we should be looking, not even necessarily for this latest conspiracy theory, which it almost feels as if the genie is somewhat out of the bottle and most attempts to crack down on it by social media will probably fail because it's so vast and social media isn't just isn't willing to shell out for the human resources needed to prevent it from growing by which i mean not just an algorithm which looks for code words which humans will always outsmart because they can just think of new ones but i do think we maybe should be drawing a line in the sand and saying you can't you shouldn't be able to profit from selling lies to people you shouldn't be able to profit from scaring people about vaccinations or 5G or something like that. And I think, yeah, I think this has been a probably really understudied part of, when I say understudied, I'm, I'm, I'm sure someone's done a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant job studying it. Um, I, I speak personally, I think this has probably been something that if we wanted to get ahead of the next, whatever the kind of next sort of viral right-wing wave will be, that is what should be tackled but i don't have much i don't have much hope that it will be in terms of the interventions that have been staged the social media companies are obviously unable and unwilling to tackle the spread of this uh, virus online are you aware of any instance where there's been other forms of intervention coming from let's call it civil society that have had any impact on um, adherence of these sorts of theories that's a really interesting question and i kind of wish i had like a more happy story. <laughs> I've seen various individual anecdotes about having a parent that's sort of slightly got sucked into this and then kind of, you know, had a little, had a moment where they kind of, you know, saw something that was critical of those movements. So I think I saw a, a post uh, which was about someone's mum who got sucked into QAnon and then watched that, um, what's it called, that documentary on Netflix, The Social Dilemma. And this triggered, you know, some part of her that then began looking at those posts in a different light, again, kind of looking on at networks of influence and what she was actually being convinced of. So I've heard, you know, individual kind of good news stories, but it's difficult to think how we could implement that in a uh, in a kind of, you know, systematic or structured way. Again, anecdotally, when talking to, so my PhD thesis was uh, more about what you might call the kind of traditional alt-right, uh, anti-feminists and the alt-right. And I spoke to lots of young men who, uh, some of them, you know, were still deeply embedded in those networks, but quite a lot of them had, had been and had got out one way or another. And nearly always one thing that they would have in common in terms of becoming disillusioned with those movements was nearly always a friendship or a relationship with a woman. And this is something that I 
always have to be really cautious when I'm telling people because I want to be clear that I'm not saying, you know, hey, like, you know, <laughs> uh, shack up with like an alt writer, you might change him. <laughs> that is absolutely not what I'm saying to do. But I think it did kind of make me realize about how much loneliness is at the heart of many of these digital communities and how attractive finding a place in those communities, finding, uh, you know, a network where it feels like you're all detectives together, you're all uh, working together. I think that is, that's a really human instinct. I think we're very social creatures. And I think that really, really appeals to people. And so I suppose, yeah, on a really, really broad, on a really, really broad landscape, I suppose, there's probably something there about kind of reducing alienation, reducing isolation. But it's it's definitely not something that, you know, any 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 one of us can kind of work on. And that's why I sort of caution against, you know, this isn't just become a like hug your local incel sort of <laughs> advice. Uh it's much, much broader than any of us individually can manage. Well, Annie, we'll have to leave it there for the radio, but we will ask you a few more questions on the podcast version, which people can find at 3cr.org.au slash yeahnapasaran on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You mentioned before people making money out of these conspiracy theories. One person that has sort of made a comeback is David Icke. Uh, mm. What do you think is behind his sort of resurgence? I mean, one thing to understand about David Icke is he has always been fantastically successful in this field he's like probably the most successful conspiracy theorist in the country certainly do you know um i've tried to get tickets to go see david ike speak and he's sold out within a couple of days the man's a real superstar <laughs> of this movement and i think part of that is because um, much like QAnon, actually his kind of central conceit of the lizard people has an amazing versatility. It, you can always update it for current events. You can always kind of, you know, keep it moving with the times. In many ways, it's sort of, you know, lots of uh, conspiracy theories which center around something like, you know, 9-11 or uh, the Kennedy assassination will always necessarily be stuck in the past. What's really clever about, yeah, both Ike and QAnon's um, conspiracy model is that they're, they're adaptable. But yeah, no, it certainly seems very unsurprising that Ike would make his name now, uh, becoming an anti-5G, anti-vaccine sort of person, anti-mask um, sort of person, because he's always been incredibly, incredibly savvy when it comes to this sort of stuff. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to sort of say that that's like necessarily a cynical move on his part. Who knows what goes on inside David Icke's head? <laughs> I try, I try not to think about it, but I think it is. It does speak to the kind of um, the kind of market flows of conspiracy theory networks. Does um, Ike have a particular? Have that have has he declared a verdict on Q, like who that person is and and how it fits into his um, world dominated by, uh, you know, alien wizards and so on? Not to my knowledge. It's possible that he has and I just haven't seen it. Where The only time that I have heard him talk about Q is from a, uh, a free speech perspective, do you know, which is kind of like the real sort of cop-out of someone who doesn't want to say where they stand on an issue. So I've seen him say, you know, why should people 
be silenced just for looking into things, do you know, uh, where he doesn't kind of like give a position one way or another. And I suspect that's, again, a little bit of kind of business savvy. Um, you know, he wants essentially to keep people's attention on him. So if you sort of say, yes, QAnon's all true, go look into it, then many of your fans and followers might end up leaving you for some other kind of charismatic sort of uh, conspiracy figure. So you probably have to um, <laughs> actually do, weirdly enough, maybe the same dance as the American Republican Party, where you have to sort of say, you know, you have to not really condemn it, but also can't really act too invested either. But as I say, it's possible I have limited knowledge on this and there's something I'm missing. I seem to recall that Alex Jones had his own sort of QAnon figure for a while where he was saying, oh, you know, we're getting our messages from you know people in the background. Maybe mm. David needs a Lizanon to jump in. <laughs> You're a, a researcher, Annie. How do you respond to the very frequent claim that people are engaged in these conspiracy theories are a engaged in research and encouraging others to conduct their own <laughs> yeah i found that really interesting actually when i was at the rally in london one thing i i quite often said to attendees was you know if a person wanted to learn more about this where should they go um and actually people were generally quite reluctant to give me answers um there was a lot of, you know, the importance of doing your own research. Um, and that's usually what they would say, but they wouldn't really map out a path for you. They wouldn't be like, you know, go to this site, go to that site. Um, often it was just search terms. They would just tell you to look up. Um, but I do think that there is an element of research to conspiracy theories. And I think research is, I mean, obviously I, I didn't start doing it because I hated it. Um, I think there is like a, you know, research is my job, but I also, I like to research and I really do get that impulse in people where you hear one, you know, you hear about one thing, you can't get it out of your head and then you have to read up every single thing that you can find about it because that's my personality style too. That's, you know, what I'm like. I, um, get very singularly obsessed with certain subjects and have to kind of find everything that I can about it. And I think that's a very normal, very normal impulse, a uh, very normal kind of personality type. And uh, lots of what people are looking into in many ways does speak to a, a group of people who are somewhat starved for that kind of feeling. Um, you know, sometimes something I think about when I see, you know, these QAnon mums who are um, uncoding, you know, sexualized messages in Disney films, for example, it's like, oh, you're like a few steps off from being like a, a media criticism person, right? Like, maybe you should have just done media studies and th that might have scratched the same itch for you that you're now, you know, doing now, becoming convinced that like the Lion King is telling your kids to have sex with one another or something like that. So I think, I think they are researching and I think there is very much an element of fun to how they research. It's about being a like little group of detectives. It's almost like a game where one of you, you know, if you find something new and you bring that back to the group, then you get to have this discussion about what it means and where it fits in with all these other kind of little bits of content. And that's very attractive because you are essentially 
becoming part of a research community. Do you know? Yeah, it's it's kind of very gamified and um, it's very exciting. And it's just, uh, I often think, yeah, like a kind of real shame, actually, that, that so much of us, that so many of these people have kind of been let down to the extent that they haven't really been properly given the tools to kind of determine what's a what's a good source and what's a bad source and and they haven't really been given the tools in this kind of like everyday non kind of dangerous sort of like culture i suppose to try and try and use those kind of impulses just to kind of you know have that kind of like fun feeling of like uh decoding something together it's kind of a real shame that that feels so like cloistered off to education and academia and feels very much like a kind of you know yeah something of a kind of academic pursuit as or yeah maybe a kind of class stratified pursuit as opposed to kind of like yeah it being more of a kind of activity that everyone can partake in without essentially becoming red-pilled you wrote a piece recently for the new york times uh called mothers for QAnon. Uh, this is a safe space. We can say, call them mums. <laughs> They're all mum stuff here. Um, what what role are mums playing in the whole thing? So I think mums have been really instrumental, essentially, in uh, this move of QAnon being a very localised, very American mass movement to being a international conspiracy theory. And this is through Save the Children and kind of emphasising the kind of child protection issue of QAnon, which like, you know, funnily enough, isn't actually that big of a deal to, you know, like posters like Q. Um, children don't like come up all that many, many times in the original Q drops, but has naturally been something that the believers of the conspiracy theory, the adherents have um, picked up and run with because it's it's so lurid and exciting to imagine, you know, these kind of satanic rituals. And so it's this part that has been a runaway success, you might say, of the QAnon conspiracy theory. And part of this is because social media parenting groups are so massive. They are huge. They have incredible reach. I mentioned earlier in our interview that uh, many of the latest QAnon believers and mothers with young children i mean mothers with young children are it speaks to that isolation issue we were talking about they're often stuck at home they often don't have enough people to talk to this has been you know a kind of um complaint of kind of women's groups and stuff like that for decades and also they watch a lot of children's media so they're like in prime in the prime spot essentially to look into this sort of stuff and also to create new content for QAnon. You know, they spend all this time with children's media, with children's toys, and so they can create new content, which often gets posted to parenting groups. And it looks like any other piece of content that's posted in those groups. Do you know, uh, so many parenting groups have, you know, watch out for this. Here's just some advice. I've just noticed this. So you may want to, you know, avoid that. That's what a lot of those uh, support groups uh, are about. And so videos of a woman then saying, you know, watch out for this doll, for instance. It's um, actually like, you know, if you look at it, it's got a pizza sign on its back. That's actually a, a code that paedophiles use. 
unless you have a moderator who is, you know, you know, super tech savvy and knows what QAnon is and knows what all the signs of it are, that looks just completely legitimate, completely valid. They sort of think, oh, I'll let them kind of, you know, hash it out in the comments if you're not sure. And so this stuff goes viral essentially, because it has so much more of a bigger reach than the very narrow conspiracy theory communities that it was intended for, or I suppose that it would have been before. So I think mums have this significant role in the growth of the conspiracy theory. But I think what frightens me even more is that I think they may have a very significant role in essentially protecting the the new movement from scrutiny. So one thing I noticed at the rally I was at was we marched from the London Eye to Hyde Park. And one thing I noticed was all these women are walking along with their babies, their buggies, and they've got signs that say stop child trafficking. And, you know, people, bus drivers are sort of beeping and, you know, uh, cheering for them and stuff like that. You know, they're getting this huge response of support. And I don't think all of those people who, who were cheering and stuff were, you know, cupelled or whatever, but it just like looked like a really, looked like a nice thing, right? If I didn't know kind of what was going on beneath the surface, I might be like, oh, you know, that's a nice, you know, nice activist group. And people often, so at kind of fascist rallies, for example, at far right rallies, there's nearly always like an Antifa presence, right? At, at least in this country, there's nearly always, you know, counter protesters, um, and I think that's a really good, healthy thing. It's about showing those people that they're not welcome. And typically it's about showing, you know, other people, particularly people who might be marginalized by those groups, that there's a supportive presence there, that they're, they're not going to kind of just tear through the country unimpeded. But that kind of presence doesn't necessarily work when what your, when what your protest looks like, the original protest looks like, is women concerned about uh, child exploitation, do you know? And one thing that I get really cross about is how whenever I'm responding to this conspiracy theory, whenever I'm saying this is wrong and this is dangerous, someone will inevitably be like, oh, so, you know, but like sexual exploitation does exist, you know? <laughs> um, you know, the rich and powerful do get away with sexual abuse. And I sort of want to be like, yeah, I know. I'm a feminist. Like we've <laughs> we've been covering this topic for like <laughs> a lot longer than the last like six months or so, um, you know. Um, but it's really clever because it immediately puts me on the defensive, and it puts any critic on the defensive. You suddenly look, you know, as if you're that person who's saying, "Oh, what a load of rubbish!" You know, um, everything's fine. Don't know what they're complaining about, and you look like the bad guy, really, because we all do know that child trafficking is a horrible crime. We do know that sexual exploitation exists. And if we're on the left, we also probably do think, you know, um, that there's a really kind of broken system of kind of um, sexualized abuse in uh, many countries where, you know, rich and powerful men can get away with basically anything. And so you suddenly look as if you're attacking people for saying those things. And not just anybody, you look as if you're attacking young mums for saying those things, which is even worse, you know. So the typical anti-fascist response to what is a, you know, pretty solidly far right group doesn't quite work because I don't think we've really prepared ourselves for what a kind of, yeah, a sort of a, a far right conspiracy theory that is propagated by 
women and mothers looks like. I understand that the organisation Save the Children issued a statement denouncing Q and distancing itself from this um, movement. Are you aware um, of whether or not that's had any impact and do you think those kinds of statements can potentially be useful in terms of addressing precisely these questions where they're being made by organisations that are um, dedicated to uh, stopping um, child abuse. So therefore, it would seem that if you're um, referring to those statements, you can't then be accused of being unsympathetic to the plight Mm. of exploited children. Yeah, so this is something that I have actually, when people have messaged me um, and said, you know, I've got a relative who's getting into this stuff. I don't know how to get them out. Um, I nearly always have sent them sent them to an article, which is just a list of various anti-child trafficking organizations saying like, please stop doing this. You're making our jobs so much harder. This huge wave of kind of calls after things like the Wayfair viral trend and stuff like that make anti-child trafficking legitimate anti-child trafficking work so much more difficult. And that's always something I, I suggest that they send on to their to their parent, to their sister, to whatever, to kind of speak to that really good human impulse which wants to which wants to protect children and sort of say, look, this isn't helping. Having said that, I don't know if I would actually recommend the Save the Children response particularly because I think I mean for one thing it like it named all of these conspiracy theories, which I kind of wish someone had told them not to do that because that's just amplifying it massively, right? Um, uh, you, I think, you know, the responsible thing to do is to be much more veiled. Don't just give people search terms that they can then look up uh, when you're making a statement like that. There is also, <laughs> I feel like ridiculous even saying this, there is also a connection between the Save the Children charity and the Gates Foundation which uh, immediately got exploited by um, by the kind of uh, Save the Children conspiracy theorists as, you know, proof that nothing that that charity said could be trusted. But there are really good articles out there which do just name a kind of host of, you know, charitable organisations and, yeah, and task forces and stuff like that and saying how this stuff doesn't help. On that cheery note, uh, maybe, we should leave, <laughs> maybe we should leave it there. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us, Annie. If people want to find more of your stuff, where could they do so? So I guess I usually post whenever I kind of have a new article or a new podcast episode or something like that out, Annie K and K on Twitter. Also, yeah, uh, come and listen to me on QAnon Anonymous as well. I've got kind of a whole backlog of episodes where I talk uh, not just about QAnon, but other fun little conspiracy theories from this this side of the ocean on that podcast yeah and i think that's that's all i have to plug (laughs) thanks very much for joining us global intifada is up next we'll catch you next week
kick your daughter out tonight Gonna show her my world I'm about to see your light But if you wanna find help me I can show you what it's like Till you're bleeding And I'm about to see your light But if you wanna find help me I can show you what it's Mother Tell your children not to hold my the Australian Friends of Palestine Association will hold the annual Edward Said Memorial Lecture via Zoom. On the 17th of October, former Western Australian MP Melissa Park will present her lecture, The Conscious Pariah, How Distortions of Facts, Contortions of Logic and Assassinations of Character are Used Against Critics of Israel While It Poses as the Plucky Democracy and the Eternal Victim. For free registration, visit www.afopa.com. That's www.afopa.com.au Australian Friends of Palestine Association is a 3CR supporter. 